welcome once again to another episode of the Random Access Podcast brought to you by RIPodcast.net. This is episode 157, recorded live on Friday, June 11th, 2010. And here are your hosts, the man who is thinking there is something wrong with his headset and mic, Dave Poy. No, I, I know exactly what's going on. And the man who is having fun with his headset and mic, Andy Lowe. Hi. And our guest this week, who has a better headset and mic than either of us, from the Ann Arbor District Library, Eli Nyberger. Hey, how's it going? Doing good. Where did you get the helium? From Myers. Why? Okay, so that's the better... Hold, hold on, I gotta finish. <laughs> okay, so the reason that I have the helium... <laughs> Is the fact that my air conditioning isn't working on my Benz, and R12 is expensive stuff. It's about 20 bucks for a 12-ounce can. The R134 stuff that everybody else is using is only about 7 8 bucks for a 12-ounce can. So I want to pressure test my AC unit in my car, and it turns out that there's a balloon time thing that you can buy at Myers or Walmart that comes with a container of helium and a bunch of balloons and strings, so it's like a party-in-a-box sort of thing. And the fitting on the helium canister is exactly the same fitting as the R12 stuff. <laughs> so you can hook it up to all of your R12 gauges and hook it up to your R12 system and pump it full of helium and pressure test it using that. Okay. See? Brilliant idea. So that's why I have the canister of helium. Interesting. See, I assumed it was a plug-in. You know, on the internet, you assume everything is a plug-in. So, I guess it was low-tech. Yeah. Hey, well, some- I, I heard the intake of breath right before it. <laughs> that was the key. Yeah, that's kind of hard to not do, especially with this, the headset that I've got going on right now. To mute it, I just move the boom up, but I'm holding a balloon, trying not to let all the air out, so... So if if I had missed that intake of breath, then I'd be concerned. Yes. Oh, things to realize for next time. <laughs> but now if it ever happens again, Dave will know exactly what's going on. Right. There you go. It's also a pretty distinctive change in your voice. Yeah. We need to get some of the, uh, oh, what is it? There's some kind of hexane gas that does the opposite effect. It's non-toxic. It makes your voice lower. Oh, Do you wait. see Adam Savage has a video of floating an aluminum foil boat in an aquarium of this stuff? I think it's like sodium hexafluoride or something like that. It's an obscure but non-toxic, heavier than air gas. Oh, and it, yeah, it makes him sound like he's demonic. Yes. Oh. That's really cool. I love the Mythbusters. I haven't watched them in a while, though. I saw their duct tape part two episode. Wait, they have enough stuff with duct tape that they could do two episodes of? Yeah, they, had, they revisited. Oh, sulfur hexafluoride. Sulfur hexafluoride. That's the heavier than air gas. <laughs> it makes your voice really low. Yeah. Interesting. It's If you ever want to just search for the Mythbusters video on YouTube, and it's, yeah. I find it hilarious. But I don't have that because I only have helium. <laughs> I imagine helium's a bit easier to come by. Yes. Although less and less every day. Helium has become such a, a critical uh, gas in the medical industry because, you know, liquid helium is used to keep an MRI's superconducting magnet chilled. So with all the explosion of MRIs and, you know, businesses that use MRIs as central uh, de- and depletion of helium st- stocks, helium is getting a lot harder. I, r- I heard a piece on uh, NPR about how the helium balloon vendors have never seen it so expensive and hard to get as it is right now. So we need to hurry up with fusion. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we just start making our own helium. Well, while you can get it right now, it's about 20 bucks at Myers. 
raspberry canister. It's about about 200 psi or so. Is this going to be the next thing that people start investing in buying like helium futures? <laughs> See it advertised during Glenn Beck. You know, helium is an enduring asset. <laughs> helium's lighter than air, so therefore helium's only going to rise. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, that would be awful. I wonder how many people you could convince to buy helium. I, I don't know. That would be a great little project out on the Diag, trying to convince a bunch of college students to invest in helium. Oh, I just, it's just all the jokes that you could do with it going up, up, up. So we should probably get to our, our guest who's been here. Who's Yeah, sorry. <laughs> he, he's, been, he's been holding his own, so I give him props for that. <laughs> but our guest this week, like I said, from the Ann Arbor District Library, Eli Nyberger. Nyberger, right? Yep, that's right. Okay. For those of uh, of you who remember, Ed Glazer rhymes with laser. (laughs) Ed... Eli Nyberger rhymes with my burger. That's right. So actually, if if you we have a line of connection between Eli and Ed, we do. Yeah, because Eli actually we we've got an even better direct connection. Uh, Eli, you were responsible more or less for getting the one ups out here for Summerfest last year, right? That's right. Yeah, we had Mustin on. Oh, awesome. Not only did we have Mustin on, but Mustin being part of the one-ups, part of the video game music scene, knows Jake Kaufman, uh-huh. who is Vert, who right. works with Ed Glazer. Ah, I gotcha. That's cool. <laughs> so really, we just need to get Jake Kaufman on. <laughs> well, you know, that's a, it's a, actually is a good plug because uh, Mustin just put the one-ups on Twitter. I think it's the one-ups band is their Twitter handle. And I know he's out there looking for followers for the one-ups on Twitter. So he's a fun tweeter. I don't know if you guys follow him, but he's uh, it's fun to follow what he's up to. He has a big dog named Bowser, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, that of course. Have they finished their... Uh, the Mario Kart album? The Mario Kart one? Yeah, the Mario Kart album shipped uh, like two weeks ago. And it's pretty great. Uh, it's There's a lot, you know, it's, it's the one-up style where it's really very faithful, but, uh, you know, pretty intricate reproductions of the music. And they did, they did a fantastic job on it. It's really nice. Sweet. I suppose the library is a copy of it. Uh, not yet, but I think we're going to. I think we're going to get it. So. Okay. I'll have to stop by and borrow that. So, Eli, what exactly do you do at the library? Okay. Well, my title is Associate Director for IT and Production. So basically, I'm responsible for, you know, all the typical IT stuff, you know, network and servers and printing and the clients and all that crap. In addition, uh, I'm also responsible for events and marketing at the library. So, uh, you know, all the stuff that the library produces, including our websites and video of events and audio and podcasts and digitization projects and all that stuff, as well as our marketing materials, promos and partnerships with other local events, festivals, outdoor stuff, plus our own library event series, all that kind of stuff. So we get to do some pretty fun things. So you so handle the fun library. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a librarian, actually. Not and a librarian. So you're the fun guy at the library. <laughs> yes. I mean, well, you know, part of, partially it's, it's one of those secrets of the library business is that there's this internal class war between people who are capital L librarians and people who are not. And that you're only a capital L librarian if you have a specific degree. And degree uh, librarian information science. Exactly. Perhaps. And really, only librarians give a shit about that. So, <laughs> you know, to, to anyone else in the world, a librarian is someone who works at a library. Mm-hmm. So, but of course, as you can imagine, when you have a certain investment in your degree and a certain amount of pride in it, it sometimes uh, can be a little ugly when someone says, I want to talk to the librarian. And talk, that person's not a librarian, you know, that kind of thing. Well, so, I mean, I, I come from an education standpoint and I can kind of that too. I mean, many people are teachers, but you know, you have to be certified and have an ed degree to be a teacher, right? So I, I can kind of see where they're coming from on that. Yeah, but, but at the I same don't know time, if I take it to that. Far. 
Well, at the same time, you know, a teacher isn't sitting behind a desk telling someone where the bathroom is six times a day. You right. know, it's, it's a, uh, you know, not the work that we typically think of as librarian work, which is, you know, sitting at the desk and helping people find books, doesn't necessarily line up to the credential it required. I mean, there's absolutely work in libraries that librarians are essential for. But is it on the public desk anymore? Not really. You know, but that's that's strictly my opinion and not those of the Ann Arbor District Library. It's heirs or parents. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we should just disclaimer that he is not... Not the library. That's right. I work at the library, but I'm appearing on this program personally. Yes. So, so Dave, how did we get a librarian or a person who so, works at the library? Andy, <laughs> <laughs> did we not just have that discussion? Um, Which is why so, I caught myself after I had said it. So I actually started following Eli on Twitter last year when he brought the one-ups because I thought that was really cool. And Eli does a lot of stuff with the gaming at the library. They had a, like, there's, there's a Mario Kart tournament there like every week isn't there? It's once a month, roughly, we have a gaming weekend. But when we set up for a gaming weekend, we have events Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So Mario Kart and Super Smash Brothers are two kind of centerpiece tournament series. So, of course, myself being a gamer and living in downtown, I've never gone to one of these, but I do see them and I I appreciate the effort that the library is doing. So I've been following Elon. He made a tweet about a week ago, week and a half ago, that just caught my attention. It's, video games are the canary in the coal mine for library gaming. The first content will lose the ability to circulate. Events are the way forward. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, partially that's part of one of these uh, new everybody get on Twitter at the same time and talk about things. That's what the hashtag is, is libgaming. Yeah. There's a similar one called follow reader, which is all about reading and, you know, the kind of future of the book. But it's kind of like a, a timed content conversation. Everybody get on the get on Twitter Wednesday at four o'clock Eastern and we'll talk about this stuff. So what's interesting to me about what's happening with video games is that a lot of the things that people get worried about in the content industry already happened to video games. Like, for example, you know, there's when you talk about the App Store, you know, the App Store is this walled garden, you know, only certain things get in. It's really great in there, but there's a defined controller of who gets in and who gets out. And uh, that's, you know, seen as a a non-open way of doing business. And it's certainly less open than the web as a whole. But at the same time, every game console ever has been like this, except for the Atari 2600, which just about killed the whole industry because they didn't wall off their garden. You know, the the, uh, the the end of the Atari era, the big message was, you know what, video games can suck. And all of a sudden, the bottom fell out of the industry. And it was because Atari was not regulating the content on their system. And when Nintendo launched the Nintendo Entertainment System, which you guys may or may not know, they first pitched to Atari to be a new console with the Atari brand on it. But Atari said, no, we're a computer company now, which is why we are all using our Atari laptops uh, to get on the web. And uh, when Nintendo brought it forward, they were like, we are going to control the content that's on the system because we don't want what happened to Atari to happen to our software market. So as a result, this whole all this consternation about the App Store, it's not like it's not crappy, some of the decisions they're making. Of course it is. But there's a really solid business case for it. And no one's a better example of it than the Nintendo, who single-handedly reinvented an industry that everyone thought was dead in the early 80s by doing this exact approach, the walled garden, yeah, the- and they having complete control. The Nintendo quality seal of approval that is on That's every right. single Nintendo, yeah, Nintendo product. certified. Yep. Is it still on Nintendo products? Yeah. Go go check out a Wii game, David. You got it sitting on your I'm shelf going, behind you. Yeah, I'm walking right over to my shelf now. Yep, it's still yeah, there. there. It's right next to the UPC on the back. Seal. 
Yep. The official Nintendo seal. Right now, do you guys know what were the NES games that did not? There were a released oh. NES games that did not have the Nintendo seal of approval. I knew that there were a couple. There's only a handful. Right. There, but, but I it, don't remember which ones. Tengen was the Yeah, publisher. the Tengen one. And right. there was uh, Noah's Ark game, if I remember correctly. Right. <laughs> yeah, and, that was, uh, oh God, what was the publisher? Tengen was the, was actually what the publisher was called and because they did a knockoff version of Tetris. Mm-hmm. Because they had negotiated separately with the Soviet Union to get because right. the Soviet Union owned the IP on Tetris. Owned Tetris. Yeah. And they had a separate contract that they thought was valid and they reverse engineered Nintendo's DRM, which of course nobody called DRM then because nobody knew what it was. But they reverse engineered it and released those, those cartridges. But ultimately Nintendo prevailed in court. Yeah, and they, uh, there was a lawsuit about it. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, in thinking about that, Nintendo used to just be like this courtroom tiger. Like, they just went after everybody in the early 80s, and they were, like, known for that. And now, it's like, you can't, you know, I can't remember the last time that Nintendo was in some sort of a legal battle that was in the headlines. The R4 well, stuff for the Nintendo oh, right. DS. Yeah. Yeah, but besides right. that, and which is pirating, um, no one, I mean, Nintendo is, is so well known as defending their IP that everyone's very right. careful about it. That's right. Don't don't piss them off. It's the, <laughs> the closest thing I've seen that would be a violation of Nintendo IP that they really could go after is the Super Mario crossover Flash game. Well, you know, that's interesting because I think part of the, they kind of have this dual status where everyone knows you don't cross them commercially, but at the same time, they're extremely permissive with non-commercial use of their IP. You know, right. like, I mean, they never go after, I mean, you know, they never go after the one-ups or, or anyone who's creating content descended from their IP that's even semi-commercial. You know, I mean, you go on Etsy, Etsy is filled with Nintendo IP. Yes. And Nintendo knows there's no upside to pursuing that kind of stuff. What what they're focused on are the, you know, the consoles at the mall, at the kiosks that are selling 160 and one units. You know, that's the end of the business that they're concerned about. But I mean, you know, and it say, uh, I mean, they've got machines that are printing money now, so I, they really don't need to worry about it. <laughs> Exactly. But, you know, part of, uh, of what that original tweet was is that, you know, video games are progressively not in formats that libraries can collect or circulate. Uh, you know, I had someone else ask me, is this really happening that libraries can't get this? I was like, well, you tell me, how am I supposed to circulate the BitTrip games? You know, as an example, I mean, mm-hmm. those are some awesome games. There's no way that the library can provide them to its patrons. And uh, it's kind of like this is, like I said, it's the canary in the coal mine. This is going to happen to books and music, too. And the highest likelihood is that the library is going to be completely cut out of the content distribution equation. You know, to to a traditionalist that's like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? We got to band together and do something. But to me, I'm like, it's already over. We lost. We need to find a new way to provide value to our communities that is not connected to collecting physical content and circulating it because there's no future in that business. <laughs> it's it's the dark side of digital distribution. Well, it, it depends on, yeah, on who you're looking at. I mean, that's that's kind of like the whole point of digital distribution is cut out as many middlemen as possible. And what exactly is a library? I mean, the nice part of a library is that it aggregates the community buying power and is able to obtain access to shared access to material with that buying power. But it's very difficult to envision a business model that has a place for libraries in it because frankly why would the publishers design one you know they're holding all the keys they have all the power why would they put a place for libraries in their content distribution model when they could be delivering content directly to the consumer and cutting out the middlemen okay so you're saying that we've, the libraries have technically have already lost that's that's my my personal opinion that the the trend is books and music are going to follow video games the music already is 
music already Everything's has. being distributed as MP3s. Although interestingly, in music, you kind of have this other dangerous model to the library, which is that everyone can get everything they want for free. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when it comes to music, you know, there's a lot of that stuff where that, that's not legal, but there's also a lot of it where it is legal, where the people who are making the music are giving it away for free. And you can buy the CD or you can buy a t-shirt, you can go see their show and that's their revenue stream. You know, it's kind of like Scylla and Charybdis for the library industry. Scylla is the DRM utopia that all the publishers want where everything is tightly controlled and, you know, you have your universal access token and they get paid every time you view something and there's no library. Charybdis is a complete reworking of copyright and all content access is free to everyone digitally. That's just as dangerous to the modern conception of what a library is as this DRM triumph is. Because, you know, I mean, what what do you need from a library when every artist is freely making their MP3s available to everyone? So what would you see as, as kind of the, the best case scenario moving forward for libraries? Since this is the trend... Right. What I think do do we need libraries to stay up? Well, it's an interesting question. It depends on how you define need. I mean, I think that libraries can absolutely provide value to their communities that justify the expense. You know, I mean, you could say, do we need swimming pools? Is really, uh, do we need municipal pools? Mm. Of course, we don't need them. You know, but they are really nice to have. And I think that libraries kind of fit into that same sort of situation because the truth is that libraries are no longer needed for the things that they used to do. There's a new need for them in that. A library is about the only place in the world you can get online for free. Yeah. You know, that that's a important role, especially as more and more governmental processes are becoming accessible only online and even, God forbid, only through IE. You know, that's <laughs> it's that's the direction that such things are going. And for the library to be, you know, to guarantee that if there's a public library in a community that you know that the people in that community, no matter what their economic situation is, are going to be able to access online services. That's a pretty important role and something that no one else is doing. But kind of the flip side of it is, you know, in the uh, in the 20th century and before, the role of a library was to bring the world to the community. You know, you'd the library would collect books from all over the world and newspapers and even phone books and get them all in the community so people can access it. Well, you know, as like anything else, the Internet's kind of turned that on its head. And I think that the future role of the library is to actually bring the community to the world, to take the content that matters to the community and put it on the web where everyone can get to it. And that takes several different forms. One is, you know, like uh, the library ADL has the archives of the Ann Arbor News. Nobody else is going to be interested in putting that stuff online other than ADL. But the primary interest of it is our own customers, but also anyone who's researching Ann Arbor or things that happened in Ann Arbor anywhere in the world, that can be a valuable resource. The other part of it is I would like libraries to become, in essence, what publishers are now, where the library brings the infrastructure. You know, I mean, when you think about it, and that's been something that people have talked about for years, and uh, I think, was it yesterday that Tom York said that the publishing, music publishing industry is going to collapse within months. I think, did you guys hear that? I think it was Tom York who said this. I've and not heard this that before. Do you have a link to it? Let me, I'll see if I can find one. But the the basic idea is that, you know, publishers are kind of a, a done idea because why, I mean, you know, you, anyone can get WordPress for free. Mm-hmm. What do you need a publisher for? Uh, let's see, months. I'm just checking to see if I can dig this up here real quick. Yeah, yeah, it was yesterday. Tech Dirt has a post about it. I will post a link here on our Skype. But yeah, mo- the, ri- the headline is Radiohead's Tom York predicts labels have months, not years left to live. And uh, that would be uh, I think he's interesting. Time to pull out any shares you have in the <laughs> publishers. That's right. Well, I think he's right on the money. You know, it's a uh, it's quite a, you know, an interesting 
perspective and he would know, you know, and he found a business model for his, for his content to get it out there with no publishers involved and not even necessarily any revenue directly involved. You know, they had the, the, uh, pay what you want release. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, how you much know, did they make off that? They didn't say, did they? I don't think they ever announced the numbers. I don't know that they announced the numbers, but I remember reading that the average payment was over $10 uh, per per person. Right. So I think that, uh, you know, that said that they weren't losing money on per sale, if you look at it from that perspective. But I would like to see libraries be that infrastructure. You know, you shouldn't need to go get crappy ass WordPress hosting if you want to publish something. You can give it to the library and the library won't just make sure to make it available to you, but they'll archive it, make it available forever. Or if you produce audio or video content, the library can be the place where that lives on the web that's non-commercial and isn't going to go away. And we're at a, we're at a stage right now where it's hard to understand that value, but you know... You remember what happened with uh, GeoCities just a few months ago. You know, GeoCities basically disappeared one day Mm -hmm. because it was a business decision. There's going to be a day when that happens to Flickr and people don't yet think about it that way. You know, these companies aren't in it for the long haul. They're in it for shareholder value. And that can be contrary to the archival mission. I mean, it's why I actually thought it was fantastic when uh, Library of Congress announced that they were going to start archiving all of Twitter because that is a database of amazing worth when you try to get down to the level of personal personal opinion that no scholarly tools have really ever had access to on that scale before. So it's nice to see because, you know, someday it's going to be Twitter. Someday Twitter is going to close their doors. And what's going to happen to it then? You know, it's funny. You hear the teenagers say things like, but Facebook is forever. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that's what they said about Chrysler, kid. You know, it's, <laughs> a, uh, it's, it's interesting to, to see the permanence of, you know, I mean, five years ago, Facebook was running under the was running under Mark Zucker's, uh, uh, running under his desk, you mm-hmm. know, and uh, it's a. It wasn't even Facebook. It was the Facebook. Right. The Facebook. They didn't even own the Facebook domain at that point. That's right. So, you know, it can come out of nowhere, but it can, I mean. GeoCities it can disappear can just as, you know, all it would take is sure. one major uh, court case about privacy. Or, you know, something like GeoCities where it happened slowly. You know, mm-hmm. GeoCities just kind of became irrelevant. There's no fault of its own. You know, and you wonder where MySpace would be right now if it wasn't for the, the, the music element of MySpace, which kind of really gave it meaning in the Facebook age. Because every band's got to yeah. have a MySpace. Well, because... I mean, MySpace was first, wasn't it? Yeah. And it was devo- It was built around the music idea. Right. So, wow. Yeah, it's... Uh... Now, my only question is... Now, I know Radiohead Your is not the... only question? Well, one of the questions that I was having was... I know that Radiohead is not the best example for this because they basically got launched because of the single of Creep back in 1992. Right. But how would Radiohead have been able to do the pay-what-you-want sort of thing if they didn't have a sort of publisher backing to make them as popular enough to actually be able to well, that's a it's an excellent question. And when you look at, I mean, as far as the infrastructure goes, that's the easy part. You know, there's something like Bandcamp. Bandcamp does play what you want. You know, that's what the one-ups are using for a lot of their releases. So getting it out without a publisher isn't necessarily the problem. It's more how do you break through the noise? You know, how do you how do you break out? I think that the notion of a hit band may be doomed. I think the notion of hit anything may ultimately be doomed just because there's going to be so much content. I mean, there already is so much content, you know? The movie are about the only place that the blockbuster still exists, movies and TV, you games. know? And well, yeah, absolutely, with games as well. But, you know, some of the most played games don't have, 
aren't necessarily things you pay for. Right. You know, I mean, look how far Cave Story went before you could actually buy it. Yeah. You know, so it's uh, I think that the notion of revenue streams that aren't associated with access to the content is where all these people are going to be getting their revenue going forward. And really, it would probably already be there if it wasn't for the inertia of the publishers and their business model. Keep trying to force that stuff and, you know, with lawsuits and lobbying and DCMA and all that crap. So just curious, what could the average person do to help out their public library? Use it. I mean, that's really the secret. You know, I mean, the uh, it's pretty hard to get rid of a library that's heavily used. But the part of the flip side is that, you know, here in, in Ann Arbor, we're very fortunate to have a library that has its its own tax. And it's relatively uncommon. There are li- other libraries that do it. But, you know, when you have a library that is dependent on municipal funding and, you know, times get crunched, there's the boom and bust cycle. And, uh, you know, when the budget gets tight, it's fire police or library is not a very difficult decision, you know? Yeah. Now... You certainly will find people who say that it ought to be, but, you know, you just can't compare being able to check out Nacho Libre to having the fire department come to your house when it's on fire. (laughs) To put out your copy of Nacho Libre. Yeah, that's right. It might melt. It might be the library's copy that's burning, you know? So it's uh, part of it is just supporting the library and also uh, just kind of being there to feed the library ideas and to help the library do cool things that it may not yet have the resources to do itself. You know, many libraries are receptive to members of the public who come up and say, I've got an idea for a program. I'd like to do this. Can you give me space to do it? I mean, libraries are excellent at providing resources and, you know, space and promotion and infrastructure are are excellent examples of that. You know, I mean, the big thing is use your library and love your library and send your library advice on what you'd like them to be doing because a lot of libraries, and this is very reasonable, are demand driven. You know, I mean, uh, you got, if you want an iPad, an iPad app, you got to tell your library that you want one and they have to hear it from enough people to say, we need to be doing this. Because it's many libraries go in too heavily for the shiny, and then some libraries don't care if it's shiny. You know, so it's uh, it's important for the demand to be demonstrated to the library, so the library knows how to allocate its resources. The other part of it is just to kind of be kind of bleak about it is that a lot of libraries that are open right now are not going to make it to the 22nd century. You know, they they made it through the 20th without too much trouble, but they're not going to make it. Yeah, I, and a lot of I, for my job, I've been traveling around the five counties out here on the West Coast. Most of the time, we would have to meet with people and most of the time we meet in public places like public libraries right and some of these public libraries in these small towns that have populations under a thousand people it's very bleak in there yeah mm-hmm. it's- and they are you know very dependent on funding that they're not in control over i mean and their state funding has kept that has kept a lot of those libraries the smaller libraries in business for a long time but you know i don't know how how, how much state funding for libraries people are expecting when the library when the state is facing a billion dollar budget deficit you know that's not much of a decision again you know and you got to cut the Department of Corrections or uh, road construction or libraries, you know. So it's a tough situation right now, especially because a lot of people have that perception that you guys mentioned and that, you know, you hear it all the time as a library person is, well, now that we have Google, we don't need libraries, right? And, you know, partially that's true because it used to be that the library served that role that Google now serves and like the, the oracle of all knowledge that you can ask and at least know where to go. But, you know, and a lot of libraries are still prizing their reference service above all other and you know references when you can come to the desk and ask any question most people don't even know that you can do that at the library but geez i mean google's not going to get any dumber as time goes on 
Right. You know, it's only going to get better at answering those kinds of questions. And that notion of, you know, what's there's a famous Dilbert cartoon that is probably in 50 percent of the library cubicles around the country where someone comes up to the reference desk and says, what's the average running speed of the Tasmanian Bula Bula dog? You know, and that type of question is exactly the sort of thing that Google is extremely good at. And then, you know, even looking at things like Wolfram Alpha, which are even better at that type of yes. reference question. You know, that whole that used to be the cornerstone of library value is you could ask them any question. Question and they were going to find the answer for you. And uh, boy, the demand for that has just disappeared, evaporated completely. And like I said, you know, that's why a lot of reference desks now, the, most of the questions they get are where's the bathroom? So it's a, uh, a challenging time for libraries to provide value, especially because many of them have not invested in technology or technology expertise. And that puts them in a situation of being behind the eight ball or having whatever meager budgets they have be locked into nightmare proprietary contracts for SharePoint or other technical monstrosities that basically prevent them from being able to invest in technical people because they're too busy paying their vendor bills. So that's maybe a little inside baseball, but you know, it's, a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, industry. So from what I'm using my mind's eye to predict into the future, you just basically seen libraries as just data centers, basically with terminals to access all of the well, digital I, information. I think that the, what a library actually is, is probably not going to change all that much. And that's a place where information important to the community is stored and can be accessed. And it's just the, the ways in which that's done are going to be changing. And also the community community center aspect of a library is one that's only going to become bigger and bigger, especially the non-commercial aspect of library events. You know, you can't, most of the things that happen in a library don't happen anywhere else that isn't commercially tied, you know, where right. you either have to pay to get in or they're pushing something or, you know, there's some sort of, they're they're collecting your email and selling it, all that kind of stuff. The non-commercial position that a library, I mean, where else in our society can you get non-commercialized access to paid content, you know? So is that going to continue or not? I think the big change for libraries is that in the 20th century, the goal of a library was to have a copy of something that also existed in 10,000 other libraries around the world. You know, you wanted to have copies of things. The notion of a library of being a building full of, full of copies that exist 10,000 other places in the world is has no future. What the library is going to be filled with is things that don't exist anywhere else in the world. And that's, you know, surely there could be some physical items, but it's mostly going to be that the library is the place that holds the content that is important to its community and not anywhere else. And that, you know, the well, stuff... If, if you get to that point, then what's to stop all the libraries from just networking and then all of a sudden, I mean, it, it becomes a second internet. It's all the information available wherever you need it. Well, I think the internet is how the libraries are getting that stuff together. I mean, everything that we can, we put on the web so that the whole world can use it. And, you know, whether or not they want it, it's up there. And, you know, AADL.org sees over 10 million page views a month. And, you know, in a town of 160,000 people, it's not all local traffic. So putting that stuff online, it shows up in hit results. The other thing about it is because so many people link to us, our page rank is kick ass. So when we post about anything, if someone's searching for that thing, we show up really high in the results. So there's all kinds of different ways that the library can provide value. And I think the primary thing is for us to invest the community resources in projects that provide value back to the community. I mean, that's all any municipal entity wants to do is provide return on investment. And actually, I would put a library that is, uh, you know, if you'll permit the turn of phrase, a library that is on top of its shit probably provides better return on municipal investment than any other municipal enterprise. Hmm. Because more people can use it. It's just it's 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 put together in a way 
that, you know, the majority of the people in service area can take advantage of its services. And, you know, that's rarely true of municipal enterprises. I mean, let me put it this way. I don't think 60,000 different individuals visit the city municipal, the swimming pools during a year. Right. But the downtown library alone has 600,000 visits a year. As many people come into the library during a year as enter Michigan Stadium during a year. Hmm. Now, of course, Michigan Stadium is only open six days a year, but you you get the idea. (laughs) (laughs) Slight difference in scale, but uh, over time, evens out now it's a fun factoid though now <laughs> yeah what happened I, I haven't been in ann arbor in a little while or do we still have the branches still open like the one that's over in the westgate shopping center and that sort yep. of stuff the westgate one's still there there's no plans for it to not be there it's uh you know it's still out there we have our three other standalone branches but that the uh, west one's still plugging along it's good to hear i'm kind yeah. of sad that there's no bookmobile anymore but well you know it's funny because the bookmobile is a service that a lot of libraries provide and it's something that is always focused on the homebound and focused on senior citizens, but that was never who was using it. No? You know, that, that was, that weren't the people who were, it wasn't reaching the audience it was intended to reach. It was just, you know, families who were like, hey, there's a bookmobile, let's go get some books. And then they would get on the bookmobile and find that it's all material for <laughs> um, other types of users, yes. And uh, it was not providing good service. So that's an interesting, interesting change as well. You know, for a while, a lot of libraries were doing laptop mobiles, you know, which really? is... Uh, <laughs> just taking a bunch of laptops around? Yeah, which is kind of an interesting idea. It kind of got totally leapfrogged by the mobile web. You know, it's kind of like, uh, I'm sure somewhere like 1910, there was a place for a horse cart that had a bunch of those, uh, you know, the movie things that you put a quarter in, you know, <laughs> but mm-hmm. that technology was leaped uh, by other delivery methods. I think that's the same case. Well, hey, even Bill Gates couldn't predict the mobile web. So that's right. Yeah. Holy crap. There's a Jenga tournament. <laughs> Dave, it's calling your name. Absolutely not. You know you want a you know you want a Jenga. No, I I did my Jenga stint. <laughs> I played Eli. Have you you played Jenga? Yes, absolutely. Have you ever played Jenga in front of seven hundred people? I have never played Jenga competitively. I, I must admit. I I have played Jenga in front of many many people. It's very stressful. <laughs> not only that, he was up on a platform. Yeah, it raised platform wow. in front of a couple hundred people. And, you know, every time the tower shifts, everyone takes a simultaneous intake of breath. That's right. So it's <laughs> pretty cool. Starts tipping, then you just hear this giant, oh, they're like, crap. Right. <laughs> Don't well, move. It's, and it's interesting that you say it because, you know, I said in the, the original tweet is that events are the way forward. And that that excitement of being at an event, especially a competitive event where something of some scale is on the line, is so much more of an exciting experience than people usually associate with the library. And it's really enabled us to kind of um, transform the way that people think about the library by having it be a place at which they can participate in a competitive event. Because that's how games are consumed, you know, you, especially games that are clearly competitive in nature, like Super Smash Brothers or uh, Mario Kart, something like that. Those games are consumed by playing them socially in a competitive environment. Mm-hmm. So it's why the uh, original title of my book I wrote about gaming in libraries was supposed to be called Just Like Storytime, Only Louder and Smellier. <laughs> but... Uh, the publisher was a little uncomfortable with that. Title. Has the book been published? Yeah, it was published in 2007. It's called Gamers in the Library. Dave, you getting that link? Right now. <laughs> ALA store. Yeah. I think uh, it is in Google Books. Uh, I don't think, I don't know how much is available there, but yeah, you can see what? it there. It's also, we have copies of it at the libraries. You can check it out. Yeah, well. I'm thinking I might stop by after we finish recording. You know, the whole two blocks away. <laughs> 
Yeah, you two are so close together for the recording, yet so far away. <laughs> so many hops between our respective microphones. Yeah. yeah. Traveling all the way to me <laughs> and then back out again. And I'm sure it probably goes to Chicago before it comes to Kalamazoo from Ann Arbor. Yeah, it does. Oh, yeah. There's, there's oh, plenty does of times where I would go to the things when they would check your IP and bring up local content and get a bunch of stuff for Chicago. And I'm just like, right. no, not so much. So we should probably hit some topics since. Oh, such well, a do you good. do you have do you okay. have any other thoughts? Well, I I had the one thought of the what are your thought what you, what's the idea of Google Books for you? Because I know you said that your book was on Google Books, but I remember yeah. there was a big yeah. argument. But it, well, I, well oh, go ahead. I mean, this is your topic, so go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that I think part of the challenge. I mean, Google Books is a very positive way to address this problem. I think part of the challenge is that part of the way that they got their settlement was by being the biggest gorilla in the room. And that their argument that anyone could negotiate a similar type of contract is pretty laughable. And I think that there is a risk of Google controlling all access to print. But to me, Google's already king of the web. What difference does it make if they're king of print as well? I mean, you know, like suddenly they have more clout. You know, it's it seems unlikely to me that, you know, it's going to be a big issue. But I think that, sorry, my phone is vibrating on the other end of the table. Um, crap. And, uh, you know, it seems unlikely to me that Google is going to make it any worse than it already is, especially when you consider what the uh, current DRM vendors have in mind for the way that books are protected. So, you know, I mean, at least if it's on Google Books, multiple people can view it at once, which is more <laughs> more than a lot of the uh, ebook options do right now. But doesn't that bring up, I know this would be a completely preposterous idea, but what happens if Google has to close the doors? Well, then then all the stuff that's in Google, at least the stuff that's being scanned uh, digitally, is also in the Hathi Trust. Uh, and that's exactly for that purpose. The Hathi Trust exists for post-Google access to all that stuff that they're scanning as part of the project. Cool. Oh, well, never mind then. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, that's shutting. <laughs> I was going. I was just going to comment that this is Google scanning the books is exactly what you're talking about in the sense that libraries would no longer be the place for physical media distribution. That's right. Yeah, I mean that. I mean, this is the future. This is Google is going to take all of this, and yes, it would be nice to have the libraries to have a dedicated access point to it. Right. But that's not going to be the main purpose of the concept of the library. I mean, what I would really love is if there was uh, a way for us to get a license agreement that allowed us to get access to our cardholders, to f access that's free to them, as much access as they want to whatever stuff has been printed, and that we would pay the creator per use, maybe a nickel, maybe a dime, you know, who knows. But that there's so much infrastructure there that's required, and more to the point, it requires the publishers to want us to be in, in the equation, which, you know, is not... There's there's no upside for them. No, but man, think of think of the size of libraries now, like the New York Public Library, the, how huge that building is. Right. And think of the amount of information that you could probably store just on CDs, DVDs, and hard drives. Right. Mm -hmm. Although so, you know they also have a lot of documents, a lot of physical things that don't exist anywhere else in the world. Right. Primary documents, things like yeah. that. And, you know, uh, sure, they'll be scanned someday, but, uh, you know, it could be, could be decades. Well, but there's also information you can get from the physical media. Uh, you know, they're doing research about the contents of the paper to tell when it was made and what the conditions were at the time. 
Sure. I mean, there's information so, in the via, in the vessel right. that's not necessarily in the page itself, but very little of a user's interest in that. I mean, you hear that from book lovers all the time. It's like, if you can't smell it, you didn't read it. And that's bullshit. <laughs> you know, that's just bullshit. I mean, even if someone scribbled something in the margins, you can capture that in a scanner or whatever. Right. Sure, scholars need access to the original physical materials. But if you just want to read the book, you know... It's interesting how people say, you know, if you're if you're sitting in front of a screen, you're not reading. And that's something that book lovers tend to say. But, you know, the majority of the reading that happens in this century is going to be on a screen, whether you like it or not. I think it already is on a majority. Is no, already the majority. On. Well, yeah. yeah, with the Internet. The number of newspapers you, that are failing. laptops, though, if well, you I mean, but, just uh, like the iPad, iPhone, the Nook, the Kindle, things like that. Like actually reading a book, then I think it's still physical media is, is dominant. But sure. I mean, if you're talking about long form stuff, but as far as the amount of text parsing that human eyes are doing, geez, I mean, the web probably won eight years ago. Yeah. You know, I mean, more is being written and read by humans than at any point in our history. And for some reason, the book people are like, oh, it's the end of the world. More people are reading and writing than ever before. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah, I can't get behind that. By the way, uh, Google Books does have your book. It is the limited preview. Uh, yes. It is limited to the first 107 pages. Oh, that's great because it's only like 141 pages long or something like 179. that. 179. <laughs> so you could get most of the book for free yeah. on, on Google Books. You Excellent. Just, you just won't figure out who the killer is. Yeah, it's that <laughs> darn conclusion that's missing. The princess is in another castle. That's the secret. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Spoilers. <laughs> Now, the, the one question I always wondered about, especially with reading off of screens compared to an actual physical media, is the amount of eye strain that's going on. You know, that, I mean... That'll change I, over time, though. I mean, the, the technology of screens are improving. You've got the, the Kindle and the Nook, the e-readers. You have uh, special glasses from companies like Gunner Optic. There's also the new screen on the new iPhone. That the one where yeah. they actually the say four- that you can't actually see the pixels because it's... Yeah, all right. So A, that's bullshit. And B, all they did is cram four times as many pixels into the same space. Well, actually, I saw a report yesterday that said, actually, it's not bullshit. For someone with a normal with normal vision, mm-hmm. because the person who had, who had debunked it was using someone with ideal vision. Ah, and so the typical were- person cannot distinguish the pixels in it. That's, that's what I, I read yesterday, yeah. Okay. But I think, you know, the eye strain issue I actually will think will be the the most interesting when our generation hits its 50s, you know, because it's like we're very accustomed. I mean, you know, I can't imagine really looking at a screen more hours of a day than I do now. Yeah. And it's never been an issue, but I'm young yet, you know. So what how because you can imagine that really being an issue uh, when the Internet generation gets becomes the bifocal generation. You know, how is that? going to affect and i think that you know if anything that might be the adoption for some type of a implanted display technology yeah you're assuming that by the time we're all 50 we're still looking at screens exactly exactly yeah i mean it might be direct neural interfaces right right or at least you know to make right now is is glasses and hearing aids that's right yeah especially like uh you know like the rainbow's end model the wearable computing have you guys read that uh no i don't think oh so. oh that's a must rainbow's end by Werner vingy you know he's a famous uh sci-fi writer and his book rainbow's end which does not have an apostrophe in it it's not about the end of the rainbow it's about the fact that rainbow's end um is a oh. very very awesome book about the near future 
And in it, everyone wears wearable computing and the interfaces and their contact lenses. So there's no implants, but it yeah. is definitely a post-human uh, type of, of... And the internet is basically uh, dust-sized nodes that are just scattered all over everywhere and just talk to each other via line of sight infrared lasers. Ubiquitous computing. Exactly. And one of the... Inter- there's a character in the book who is coming out of Alzheimer's because he has the magic genetic treatment to be able to be treated for Alzheimer's. So all of a sudden, after being completely out of it for 20 years, he basically has like a 19-year-old body again. And so you you experience this world through his eyes because he's from our time. And one of the first things they tell him when he wakes up is, do you want your newspaper to pretend to be Windows 95 or Windows XP? <laughs> Because that's they want him to use some type of old school interface paradigm that he'll be used to because you have to learn how to use the wearable computing and he has right. to go to school to learn how to use it. It's a fantastic book. Highly recommend I'll have it. to pick that up. Now, is the library doing anything for helping education of those people who actually don't know how to use Windows XP? Or- I can answer that right now. Yes, they are. I'm looking at the events list. There's a Microsoft Word. There's Microsoft Excel. There's intro to email. Yeah, we do tons of classes, and as you can imagine, that's the primary audience that comes to them. I mean, uh, you know, we don't get too many under 30s for the introduction to email class. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that's a big part of our, of our services is reaching those audiences and trying to, trying to help them get more up to speed on new technologies. And also, again, that non-commercial opportunity, we're not pushing any specific service. You know, we're like, here's the thing. And, you know, it's kind of different for the office products, but that's really outside of what happens at the library, you know, because it's like someone comes in, they're like, I need a job. They told me I need to know Word to get this job. So even though there are obviously lots of great alternatives to Word, we're there to teach them how to use Word so they can get a job. Now, I remember there's a, there's a book that I always kept on reading, and I read it every couple of years just to look back on it. It's called uh, Scrolling Forward, and they talks about evolution of physical media into the digital space and that sort of thing. Uh-huh. How are you guys handling format upgrades? Like going well, from gotta, Windows 95 to Windows 98. Because right. if you have a digital format of something, there's stuff from the Commodore 64 that I don't think anybody would be able to read even now. Yet there's a book from 100 years ago that I could go and check out and read. That's right. Or the death of the floppy disk. And yeah. at some point in the near future, the CD. Right. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting question, and there's a lot of different angles on it. Uh, one is in terms of media that requires a specific player. That's totally not our mission as a public library, but it is an excellent mission. I don't know if you guys know about this, but the Computer and Video Game Archive on campus, the yeah, University the, of Michigan. Yeah, the U of M. Yeah. They had their rock band thing a couple uh, weeks ago. That's right, and that's their job. They, they actually keep a Commodore 64 running for the purpose of being able to run that old stuff. So, you know, that's part of their mission. For, for a public library, it's basically about not being smart about what formats you invest in. You know, we never bought any Laserdiscs. It's a good thing we didn't. But we did invest in Blu-ray because Blu-ray is possibly the last big disc-based media, but it clearly has a strong future, Uh, especially just because HD and then progressively 3D is always going to be ahead of the net's ability to stream the data fast enough because of the bit rates involved. So we did make a choice to invest in Blu-ray for a, a small collection. But, you know, there's lots of intermediate formats. In terms of digital information and how you survive with that, we're always of the opinion that uh, the preservation format of choice that we use is the web. If we keep it on the web, it'll always be available. You know, where and so long as we have a migration plan to get from one web server to another and one disk to another and one backup to another, the web is our preservation strategy. 
So, so long as you keep it on the web, you know, at the very least, you'll always be able to scrape it. So there's one, uh, one thing I, I have about that, one question I have about that, and it's something that Isaac Asimov brought up, because he actually, he kind of foresaw that mm-hmm. in, uh, God, it was either in Prelude to Foundation or Forward Foundation, uh-huh. uh, and it was that the, the galactic library, the central library of everything, right. uh, was losing records, not through mishandling or not copying it over, but just that because the amount of information kept growing, that certain records that never really got called up very often would get pushed further and further and further down into the archives and eventually right. would just, you know, if they don't get refreshed enough, they're going to get corrupt. Yeah. So it- how, how do you deal with that? Well, it's an interesting angle, and I think that part of that is that the technical concern that he's addressing there is part of, like, the great golden age sci-fi disconnect where they saw everything except for one thing. You know, like uh, uh, you read a book about the, the, the ship that's traveling to another, to another solar system, and they're changing the, the printed tape that they run their programs on. You know what I mean? I mean, part of, part of that issue is that... You know, I mean, you guys know if a document's on a web server, it doesn't really matter how often it gets how often it gets accessed. That doesn't affect its accessibility how often it gets accessed. And basically, our strategy on that is don't let the piles get separated. Make one big pile because then, if you're migrating anything, you're migrating everything. You know, so you you can't leave undemanded things behind if the act of upgrading one data store is the act of updating everything you hold. And interestingly enough for us right now, that, that platform is Drupal. You know, we're using Drupal nodes to store everything we want to store going forward. Hmm. That's, a, that's, a, that's an easy idea. How do we, how do we make sure we don't lose anything? <laughs> Keep it all together. Together. That's right. <laughs> I'd like to point out that in the course of this conversation, I have gone online, registered my library number, and reserved both Gamers in the Library and Rainbow's End. All right. Awesome. <laughs> I like this website. <laughs> now I just have to go to my public library, the Portage Public Library over here, and uh, rent the Xbox 360 games that are, have now just officially been launched. Excellent. Now, you know, that's funny because that original tweet that we were talking about, that whole conversation that day was, how should libraries be circulating video games? And part of my claim there was, they shouldn't. You know, and well, is, is it that they, they should plan on not doing it ever? Or that, like, right now, they should say, that's it, we aren't going to do this? I'm of the opinion, personally, knowing the way that libraries work, that now is not the time to be developing a circulating video game collection. Not because there's not value in it for the customers, but because there's not a good return on investment for it for the library for a couple different reasons. Um, One is that there's no right way to make the decision of what platform you support. You know, if you support all of them, you know, if you support Sony, Nintendo and Microsoft, you got to cut your budget in three in three pieces. Mm-hmm. If you decide to support only one of them, like the Xbox, you're cutting your audience in three pieces. And it's right. interesting to me to choose the Xbox, which, you know, is dominant for hardcore gamers, of course, but not dominant for casual gamers, which are a much larger audience. And uh, the other part of it is just in terms of the cost effectiveness. You know, if you buy one copy of a game and you circulate it and a miracle happens and it comes back every week... You can reach 52 people with that game in one calendar year. But if you take that same game and have a monthly event playing it, you can reach 52 people in a single afternoon. So you can you can reach more patrons with whatever money you have to spend on gaming if you spend it on events as opposed to circulating collections. 
I mean, I think another thing I said in that conversation, uh, that lib gaming that day, was that circulating collections are a 20th century solution to a 21st century problem. Yep. You know, and when all you have is a circulation system, everything looks like, you know, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You know, when all you have is a library catalog, everything looks like you should circulate a collection. But I'm not of the opinion that it's the best way to, best way to reach those players, especially because you don't necessarily build community with a circulating collection. And that's what libraries really need to be doing right now is building communities around the content they consume. And, you know, I mean, if you go get a, a you know, an Xbox 360 game, do you meet anyone else at the library who likes that game? You know, that's not part of the experience of using a circulating collection. And it's funny that, you know, it's like the same thing with books. The libraries are always like, you know, that reading and books are so important. And they bring people together. And it's like, well, that's bullshit. There's nothing more antisocial than reading a book. You know, sure, you might get to talk about it with somebody at some point. But the act of books, reading books, is not like a that. social activity. You know? No. Whereas the act of gaming is inherently social. It's inherently social. Exactly. Exactly. Now I'm just thinking of have, having somebody go in. Oh, yeah, I'm just going to go check out Madden from the library. I'll be back later. To the other guy going, oh, my God, did you see what happened with the Madden game last night at the library? Like, whoa. Right. Yeah, that's a very big, a very big difference. So, all right, that's topics. Okay. As much as I want to keep going on about this, we, we could. We certainly could. We have topics. We, we really need to blast through these. Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Because by my clock, I think we've got like 10 minutes left. Yeah. Okay, so NPD is not going to um, release the May, because the May numbers should have been out basically this week or next week, but they're not going to be out. They're going to be out until July. There's a significant change, quote-unquote, being made to the architecture to better serve everybody. That's good. So, What came out in May? Super Mario Galaxy 2. I mean, Galaxy 2 whoa. Splinter Cell, right? Yes. No. Okay. Yes. No? Splinter Cell, it couldn't have been April. No, yeah, you're right. It was May. Because April numbers sucked. Yeah, well, May numbers aren't going to be much better, so this is just delaying sad news until no, after. You don't think they'll be better? Well, I'm just thinking they're just delaying the news until after E3 is over. Yeah, mm. That's probably right. But that's just that's the conspiracy but theory. But the NPD is, is independent of the actual industry, though, so why would they care? Um, they're getting paid by the industry to do these numbers. Okay. That's, that's all I'm thinking. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think that... I'm usually the conspiracy theorist here, and I think that they're actually just changing their architecture behind the scenes. But waiting I, for an I, entire month seems a little weird. Andy, when, what's the last web page you programmed? <laughs> and tested. <laughs> right. Moving on. Um, oh, my big my, in my May. blog for my online journalism class. <laughs> Yeah. Other releases in May. What else came out in May? Oh, there was also Blur was a big one and Mod Nation Racers. So that's like four big games. Now I'm just wondering if my blog is still up. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, Andy mentioned E3 as part of the the little conspiracy theory. Last year was motion control, which no no one saw coming. And now, uh, supposedly this, this year, year, everyone sees what's coming, supposedly, and it's going to be 3D gaming. What a shocker. Everybody gets to wear sunglasses. 
Not for the 3DS, though. It'll be very interesting to see what yeah. story breaks out into the mainstream media. Because, you know, 3D games on the PlayStation 3 where you have to have a 3D television and a 3D glasses, that's not quite as much of a breakout story as Nintendo has a new handheld. Your kids are going to want it this Christmas. And guess what? It doesn't need it's glasses. 3D and, yeah, yeah, you don't need glasses. I've seen a, a prototype, not of the 3DS, but it was actually an iPhone program. Uh, that models a potential it 's what it could be without glasses, and it really was three d in the sense that as you changed the position of the phone, the image changed right uh, but if you look if you the phone was perfectly still and you move around the room it 's not going to change at all right oh. but it, it 's an interesting possibility but i 've heard i mean the three d s is supposed to actually have some type of a, of a visual device yeah you know, I, a visually split i really don 't know what they 're going to do if they can pull this off it 'll be amazing for them um, continuing with video games the rock band three was actually we talked about the keytar yesterday that 's right yesterday or last week last week there you go one of those things in the past that i don 't care about <laughs> some point before, previous to this which yes. may or may not have existed. No, it existed. It's interesting because, you know, knowing the harmonics guys, I've got to wonder if this isn't born not only out of their desire to do something new with the franchise, but also because they're probably tired of hearing from all their musician friends how that's not playing. You know what I mean? <laughs> playing rock band isn't the right. real thing. Well, but the, they, they've, they're on record as saying previously that their end goal would be to teach people how to play these instruments. That's right. Yeah. And that's where the drums came from, is they wanted you to actually sit down, and once you got good enough at it in the game, that you could go and sit at an actual drum set and start playing. Yeah. And so now they're adding this pro mode with new peripherals and a keyboard. A 25-key keyboard. Okay, so it's two octaves? Yeah. Like an octave and a half, something like that? Something yeah, right but you know, there. I mean, that's a standard size for portable MIDI keyboards. And it is, right. it is a full MIDI keyboard. My understanding is you can actually use it with a MIDI driver on a laptop as well. Yep. Oh, that would be fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a real musical instrument. It's not a toy. Right. So it's I, interesting. I, like I don't know if you guys... Go ahead. Oh, no, I, I'm just saying I like this. And I have a feeling they haven't announced a release date, but I'm... Looking back at their history, September. Yeah. This will be out by September. You know, and I think I, I was at Toys R Us recently. I don't know if you guys have been to a Toys R Us, but they have a new section in the front that is all real musical instruments. Now, it's the type of musical instruments that one finds at Toys R Us, but it's real musical instruments, and they have this big, like, uh, standee up on top of the shelves, which is like, you know, learn to rock, and they have all these pictures of characters that look very much like rock band avatars. <laughs> So what's interesting about this is not just, you know, what Harmonix is doing with Rock Band 3, but also that this whole kind of rhythm game genre has driven interest in actually learning how to play instruments. Yep. Which, can, when you consider the, uh, what's happening with music programs in schools, couldn't really come at a better time. Right. My question for Rock Band 3 is the Rock Band song database is huge. I mean, thousands of songs now. Yeah. Are they going to go back to all the ones that have keyboards and add that part back in? Hmm. I'm not sure. If if they do that, I will I will go out on launch day and buy a keyboard. They'll probably do some some of the marquee some really good yeah. songs. Well, I mean they they've even got some of the the rights to the songs that they had lost when they split with Red Octane. Right. Joan Jet Rock and Roll is going to be on the the release disc for Rock Band Three. Awesome. Side note: I'm loving that Crazy Train is finally in a music because that. Yep. Oh, after playing Park at the Moon, after riding the Crazy Train, yeah. 
and also the um, new guitar that's coming out with Rock Band 3. It's got six mm-hmm. strings and uh, 17 frets. Which is, I believe, a typical guitar. Yeah. Yeah. So their goal is to have you playing the instrument. Which is crazy. Yeah. And fantastic. Awesome. All right. Uh, Ziff Davis got sold again. This time to somebody who from uh, Time Magazine. It's not even a year, right? Uh, maybe. I'm not Wait, exactly who, sure. I thought Time Warner bought them last, right? You're trying to access memory banks that have long been... Um, <laughs> Overwritten. Yeah. <laughs> oh, let's see. Oh, so close. So March in 2008, ZD Media uh, filed for Chapter 11. That's what it was. Oh, okay. Uh, they were sold in July of 2007... From, uh, oh, no, their their Enterprise Edition was sold. Yeah, oh, they, you were probably thinking of a year ago when uh, UGO bought one up. Yeah, it must be. Which used to be ZD. Yeah, or, I think that's what I'm thinking of. Okay. And then all the CNET stuff back like 10 years ago. They, they have not been good, but what can you do? No, they, they, I believe the term is toxic asset. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I have nothing to prove that. Uh, so BIOS will be dead, Andy? Supposedly. I'm not exactly sure. It's this weird point-and-click interface now that um, MSI is starting to roll out, which I don't know if I like that. I, I mean, BIOS is, is, well, by definition, basic. I know. Uh, if, if it's not BIOS, it's going to be something else that does the same sort of thing. You need an onboard controller on the motherboard that gives you access to certain things. So basically the replacement is the universal extensible firmware interface, which is basically okay. a point-and-click version of BIOS. So, you know, it arose by any other name. It's still BIOS. Yes, but it's not the BIOS that we know and love slash hate. Right, but it <laughs> changing its name does not change the fact it is a basic input and output system. Well, but changing its interface doesn't mean that either. You know, I mean, the EFI project at Intel, which was what led to this, was a very smart replacement for the infrastructure that BIOS brought to the equation. Because, you know, I mean, BIOS is from the 640K days, you know, as far as the way that it's been designed. So I think that the uh, the intent of replacing it with point-and-click is not such a bad idea. No, because no, of, not you know, at all. It's I mean, still, it, it looks like it's from the 1970s. Right. Oh, I miss those blue and white screens. <laughs> Although, oh, words. I have to say, it's been a long time since I've needed to get into the BIOS of anything. Right. Uh, I'm just thinking blue and white screens make me think of Word (laughs) (laughs) 6.0. All right, so the online pass. Yeah, it's EA's idea that if you buy a game used, that you have to pay... It's their way to recoup money on used sales, because so many of their games, you know, since they publish the same game every year, uh, (laughs) go to reuse. Yeah, as I can stare at my used copies of Madden and NCAA football... Yeah. I'm sorry, how many NCAAs do you have, Andy? Three? Seven, eight, and nine, and I have six, seven, and eight for Madden. Yeah. So it's really interesting that they're trying to do this, that they're planning to do this now, you know, because it's clearly not a a customer-oriented thing. Nobody likes it, especially not the, the, the guys who buy the games every year. But the big thing about it is it's such a stopgap solution. I mean, this it's not like they're trying to build infrastructure for the future because when there's no more disks, this is not going to be a problem. 
Right. You know, you either buy but it from them or you don't buy it. It is a, a stopgap, and sometimes that is what you need. I mean, they're seeing this and they're looking at their the games that are going at GameStop for five bucks, ten right. bucks. Right. They're going to make twice as much as GameStop's going to make on that disc. Yeah, but I guess my question is, how many people who buy it used are really going to then turn around and play the ten bucks, pay the ten bucks to play it online? You know, especially because once the word gets out about this and, you know, I mean, the GameStop employees are going to totally be like, you know, you can't play this if you don't spend the 10 bucks extra. No, it's not like people are going to buy it without knowing about it. And I think what it really is going to do is create an opportunity for a competitor to these games that doesn't require you to pay to be to to be online, because then the buyers of the used games are going to do that. Because all the hardcore fans are going to have the original game, you know, so they're not, they're not going to be affected by this. It only affects the resale market. And to me, it's just they're just going to be pissing off consumers at a, a negligible amount of revenue, building an infrastructure that they're going to be walking away from in five years. So what I find really interesting is the fact that EA shuts down the online usage for some of their old games after a few years. Yeah. yeah. So you're going to pay 10 bucks and then in three years you can't use it anymore. Yeah. Right. So why would you? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> All right, uh, Chinese boot camp, prison break. This was the the internet rehab camp. Yes, a bunch the of them, internet addiction treatment center. Yes, a bunch of them decided they had enough. Um, they tied their super their supervisor to his bed and made a run for it. All fourteen patients <laughs> hailed a taxi, and um, the taxi driver took them to the police station. Basically, because a they were all identically dressed, and none of them were able to pay the taxi cab fare. How so do he, you pick up fourteen people in one time? Ta- I mean, that had to be a bus. I, I don't know. Maybe they're like the people on who ride the trains in India, who just literally like hop on the outside of the train. Yeah, that's I. I don't. All know. right. Do you think they did a Chinese fire drill at the stoplight? Hi-oh. Oh, they probably don't actually do that in China. I, mean, I, I doubt it's probably they similar do. to Chinese food in that they've. Have you ever seen that video of the Chinese guy at opening a fortune cookie for the first time? Because <laughs> you know they they don't have fortune cookies in China. It's, it's a China. totally American thing. Yeah. Right. He's like, what the hell is this? Why is there paper in the cookie? What's wrong with you people? Um, the FTC was thinking about putting taxes on consumer electronics to help fund newspapers. I think this is not a good idea. Talking about stop gaps. Oh. Yeah, like that's that's not a good policy. Well, and it's not totally, I mean, it's like, I mean, the picture on the story is so appropriate, right. bailing out the sinking ship. I mean, it's just, you know, the when newspapers are garbage factories, and the yeah. sooner that format dies, the better. So are you, are you, are you actually pleased? By game politics. Uh, 2006, I think. Really? Yeah. Wow. I missed that. So, Eli, are you are you happy that the Ann Arbor News is not really minus the Sunday and Thursday ad fests? <laughs> you know, I mean, it was uh, it was not a business that made economic sense and that uh, I'm not in favor of that. <laughs> you know, I think the big thing is, I mean, you know, there's a generation that has a ritual associated with the newspaper. Uh, I'm not among that generation. I've never, you know felt positively about, you know, I've never had that sort of um, time in my day for the newspaper, you know, so it's difficult. And I think that part of the issue is that the audience that does depend on the newspaper for their news, uh, they feel very adrift and uninformed because, you know, if you don't understand RSS and RSS still really hasn't broken out of geek land, if you don't understand RSS, it's pretty hard to keep up with news online. And uh, I, you know, I hear it a lot here in town mm-hmm. uh, that they bemoan the Ann Arbor News. But a lot of people, you know, 
I've only lived in Ann Arbor for about 17 years. I don't remember the Ann Arbor News ever being good, so it never meant anything <laughs> to me. You know, but uh, there are people who remember when it was, you know, more serious news organization. Mm-hmm. But I actually, you know, I got to say AnnArbor.com is doing a lot of things right. You know, yeah. there's still a lot of things that I think they could do better. But, uh, you know, when I saw the phrase Dear Abby and more after the jump in the same node, I was like, wow, this is this is the future. This is what it looks like. You know, get a PDF of your comics. So it's uh, I think it's interesting to see what they're doing. All right. Uh, quantum teleportation. This was the, the quantum entanglement. Two uh, particles separated, in this case, by 16 kilometers. When you make changes to one, they're reflected immediately in the others. So 16 kilometers now. So they, they start together. They're separated. And they've been able yeah. to affect the other ones 16 kilometers 16 apart. 16 kilometers away instantly. It's interesting that the primary technical challenge seems to be how to move the particle. Right. You know, like how to keep keep the entanglement and, and, and keep the particle move from one place to another. But, uh, but yeah, it's definitely like you're saying. It, you the, know, if the we can do this, then we have instant communication. Well, you know, it's kind of, it's, I think it's really like you were saying about the Ansible. Uh, its primary value would be off off world. Yeah. You know, we pretty much already have instant Which communication does, here. Does uh, bring up interesting questions about relativity and sending speed versus receiving speed and right. things like that. Uh, because if the other world is moving, you know, if it's much closer to the center of the galaxy, it would be moving at a much faster rate. So, you know, relative to uh, a third observer. So relativity between the world means that time will pass faster on one than on the other. Which means, I, I think that means that the message could arrive before it is sent, right? <laughs> I don't know. How about we just get to <laughs> Mars first? I need to go talk we... to uh, a couple of theoretical physicists. <laughs> Do we have, I, of course we have those. This is U of M. <laughs> I think it will be interesting to see when one of these pairs they try it with one on Earth and one on the moon. Yeah, Ooh. that would be that'd be a pretty There's, cool. Experience. How much of a delay? There's like a, a six second delay or something. Yeah. Okay. I know the well, sun is like an eight minute delay. Right. No, no the sun is uh, six minutes. Six minutes. Yes. Okay. So maybe the moon was eight seconds. Something. A bit, it's it's still not much. So it's notable. Yeah. It, it is. It is a physical difference. You can measure it. Okay. We really gotta finish this. <laughs> um, um, Apple released an iPhone. Next. Big whoop. <laughs> AT&T uh, released all the iPad emails. Emails. Oops. Oops. Uh, the yeah. iPhone doesn't work if you have a lot of other wireless devices near it. I actually saw that when I was watching the NBC Nightly News. They, they, when they announced the new iPhone, their big thing about the, the majority of that story was showing the clip of him trying to get it c- to connect to the Wi-Fi. Couldn't. I, I do enjoy the one guy when he shouted out to, to someone in the audience, you know, any suggestions. One guy in the audience had the balls to stand up and say Verizon. Oh, man. <laughs> that was it's interesting, great. though, that the the, uh, the television news that that was their big takeaway, because basically, well, if you think of the audience that actually watches television news, that's what they want to see. Is these right. nerds not having their shit together. That's would be that would be the, the one thing interesting and all that everything else was for like the uber nerd and the apple geek right all right so the last thing gamer petition uh this is the schwarzenegger versus ema which is the the first amendment breaking depending on your view uh case that's going up to the supreme court about whether or not video games are protected under first amendment law uh the eca has an online petition that you can sign they are going to be briefing as a friend of the court, 
And they will also be submitting this petition to the Supreme Court hmm. when they brief. And this is going to happen sometime in, like, October, isn't it? E- this fall, so yeah, because that's when the Supreme Court hears its cases, right? It's yep. like October to January. Mm-hmm. And then they rule on them in, between May and July. Something like that. I don't remember exactly my Supreme Court timeline. Yeah, it's 11th grade <laughs> government. I don't remember this. They'll um, be hearing it this fall. They'll be ruling it sometime next year. Yeah. Oh, and we figured out what the rumor supposedly is for June 19th with T-Mobile. The fact that if you're a new person and you sign up for a family plan, you can get a free phone. All the phones from for that plan will be free. Yeah. Any phone in the store. Any phone in the store. Free. If you sign up for a two-year contract with the family plan, which yeah. I'm not sure how much everybody else is, but our family plan is $59.99 a month for 500 minutes. But Each of you or total? Total. Wow. I know. That's nice. Which is why we haven't changed our plan ever. That's really nice. All right, random topic. Go, Andy. Um, I rolled ahead of time. It was a new one that got suggested to me by email. Thank you, listener. Um, I'm not you sure exactly who you are, but... Andy does. You know who you are, but Andy doesn't. Yes. So if you want to email me again with your name so I actually know who you are. Um, but the random topic is DIY, which I'm do guessing you mean do it yourself, because I'm not sure I, what other... Well, I actually went and looked up the other uses of that acronym. It's all do it yourself. It's all every you, almost there's like one use that is not do it yourself, but it, like all the other uses are for things that do do it yourself. Huh? Yeah, it's all do it yourself stuff. I'm a big proponent of doing it myself, which is why we talked about the helium. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Because um, not many people in any of the shops around here deal with R12 uh, stuff because it's been certified as a pollutant by the EPA, and so they don't want to touch it. Right. Side note, I'm actually um, certified now to handle R12 by the EPA. Ooh. Yeah, uh, 20 nice. bucks and a test online, and <laughs> I'm certified now. You should, or uh, true or false, you can dump this down your sink. Right. <laughs> well, it's a gas. Well, technically, it's uh, propane, and a blend of propane and methane, so you really wouldn't be able to. Okay, true or false, you should release this into the atmosphere. <laughs> that actually was a question. <laughs> Not true or false, but it was a question asking that if you, are you able to vent this in the atmosphere? I'm going to guess no. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the correct answer. That... Like, really, on any question the EPA gives you, is this okay to vent in the atmosphere? Should, by default, you should just assume no. But there's there's other things that I really don't want to do it myself. There's some times where it's just like, I just want to get a product that will do and, it for yeah, me. You know, I don't want to build it's a toaster myself. Someone well, tried that. It didn't come it, out very well. It's like the whole, you know, the whole credo of the maker movement, screws, not glue, you know, and the maker movement is a really big thing and it's awesome and it's encouraging a lot of people to do exciting things. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think that uh, the makers sometimes lose sight of the fact that the majority of the population is simply not interested in the same things that they're interested in and that, you know, especially you work at a public library, you'll see there's very few people who want screws, not glue. Right. Most of them just want it to work. But there is, I mean, it, it boils down to it, it's another group of geeks. Right, exactly. Who, and I think, you who know, have a movement and want it to be publicly accepted, but you're a group of geeks. You're a bunch of nerds. 
Now, I think it's interesting here in Michigan, especially because now you guys know about the Maker Fair, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, the Maker Fair is coming to Detroit at the end of the at the end of July. Yep. Uh, at the Henry Ford. What's interesting about that is that this is really a way forward for all these folks who are out of work from the manufacturing industry and are waiting for jobs that are never going to come back. You know, yeah. a lot of these these people have skills, they have knowledge, you know, but they're waiting for someone to come give them a job. And it's, you know, it's not going to happen. And one of the things that's cool about the maker movement is a lot of a lot of these people have found ways to monetize the things that they make and have found ways to make businesses out of their hobbies. And I think it's a really important message for the manufacturing economy that the future is in, you know, well, like in, in uh, Dr. O's book makers, the future is in little people who can do all kinds of stuff, you know, not in enormous corporations having huge R&D budgets. The future is in individuals making things. And uh, that's an important message, especially for Detroit. The, the, the idea is going back away from specializing down to the minutest details and finding the people who can who are basically the Renaissance men, the people who know a bit of everything, who can do right. everything. Oh, sad. I missed the Ann Arbor Mini Maker Fair. Oh. I do have to say, week. though, um, a public library is a very good place for a do-it-yourselfer to find um, reference materials. That's right. The yeah, and of... actually, we have Chilton's, all the Chilton's guides available online. Did you know that? Yeah. Oh, I, I found that out at my public library and then accessed their online database. Excellent. So, yes, I know that they're all there, which is very helpful. <laughs> all right. So, Eli, yes. uh, is there anything, any link, any site, any facility you wish to plug at the moment? Sure. Uh, probably the thing to do would be to uh, check out the GT system, which is the system that uh, our library developed, which allows all libraries to run their own gaming tournaments and have shared leaderboards across lots of different organizations. So you can find out more about that at wiki.gtsystem.org. And you can also look at what AADL's GT system site looks like at aadl.gtsystem.org. And uh, there's a bunch of stuff on there. You can see, you know, what the system is. It's intended for libraries to use, but a lot of a lot of times uh, a gamer can go to the library and say, hey, there's this thing that all these libraries are in. There's over 300 libraries signed up for GT system and say, this is a way that you can be a part of a tournament that happens really big. And the other thing is National Gaming Day at your library is in November. I think it's November 13th this year. And AEDL will once again be hosting a National Smash Brothers tournament online. Last year we had 41 libraries all around the country playing live online Smash Brothers matches in a bracket. We'll be doing that again this year in November. So the one other thing is if you check out AEDL.tv, You'll find video of all of our different events, including there's a whole section of recorded video game tournaments with color commentary and all that kind of stuff. So if you're wondering what happens at a video game event at the library, you can find it at AADL.tv. Wow. So, yeah, that's, that's my all right. <laughs> that's impressive. Gotta love that Tuvalu. Yeah, that's, thank you, Tuvalu. <laughs> thank you. Well, okay, cool. I think that's it. Yes. All right. Thanks a lot for having me, guys. This is oh, a blast. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to have you. <laughs>